All right, we're going to go back to the book of Habakkuk tonight, if you would. Habakkuk, chapter 1. We'll start out, and then we'll go into chapter 2 as well. Habakkuk is right after the book of Nahum. So if you find Nahum, just take a short right, and you'll get Habakkuk. If you come to Zephaniah, you've went too far. And uh, They're all very small books, so it's easy to miss, but I'll let you find those. What do you do when you've prayed to God, but you don't like the answer that you get? We've all probably been there at times, we, uh, uh, because that's really the way life is. You have your dreams, you have your plans, you even seek to do God's will. You pray to the Lord and you get an answer, and it's not the answer that you wanted. It's unexpected. It can even be bewildering. What do you do then? Can I give you a, uh, an earth-shattering truth? Your plan and God's plan are sometimes not the same. That's uh, something we learn sometimes the hard way. You say, uh, and I say, we've said to the Lord, your will be done. But what we really mean sometimes is I hope your will is what, my, is what I want. That's what we really hope God's will is. And sometimes it shocks us when God has something completely different in mind. This is Habakkuk. He doesn't like the answer he received. Last time we talked about the prayer to God. Uh, first, he thought that God was ignoring Judah's sin. And secondly, he never thought that God would use Babylon to judge the people of Judah. And he was wrong both times. And so again, I ask, what do we do when God doesn't live up to our expectations? How do you respond when the Lord's response isn't what you expected or wanted? Let's read a passage and we'll look at how Habakkuk dealt with it. Uh, in chapter 1, starting at verse number 12. And we'll read through verse 4 of chapter uh, 2. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. That's a, that's a hard one. When the wicked is used by God to destroy someone more righteous than the wicked one is. This, is. this is a problem that Habakkuk had. And make us men as the fishes of the sea, and as creeping things that have no rule over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net, and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice into their net, and burn incense into their drag, because by them their portion is fat, and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon that tower. And will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Father, I pray you'd help us now. Use a reading of your word as we look at questions that Habakkuk had for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Habakkuk was troubled 
by something that troubles all of us. His view of God and the injustice that he saw around him did not reconcile. He could not make those two things square up. Pollster George Barna asked Americans, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? By far and away, the most popular response was, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? That makes sense. We see suffering everywhere. And we wonder where it comes from. We wonder why God allows it. C.S. Lewis said, the problem of suffering is atheism's greatest weapon against the Christian faith. And he's right, really. Uh, it's something that we have a hard time answering. Why did the tornado land here and not over there? Why was one girl kidnapped and one escaped? Why would God allow one child to be born with a disability who did nothing to deserve their lot in life? Why do good men get sick and bad men thrive? The list of questions are endless when it comes to trying to figure out the justice behind what God does. The question of pain and suffering truly is the greatest challenge to belief in God. There's an argument uh, concerning this idea of human suffering that skeptics use. It has, uh, it's called the trilemma. Let me explain it here. The, tr the argument is set up by naming three things that we believe as Christians and then trying to show that they are irreconcilable. Here are the three facts, and see if you don't agree with all of these. God is all-powerful. He can do anything He will. We believe that. Secondly, God is all-loving. He intensely values and loves His creation. And number three, suffering is an all-pervasive part of this world. All three of those statements are true. But the argument used is that these contradict one another. If God is all-powerful, He could remove your suffering. If God is all-loving, He would remove your suffering. But the fact that there is suffering uh, proves that one or both of these statements are not true. This is the trilemma. How do you deal with that? Because that's something people wonder. That's something pe I've had those discussions. You probably have too. The problem can be resolved if we do not limit the attributes of God. Yes, God is all-powerful. Absolutely, God is all-loving. But what if we add to that equation that God is also all-wise? He is also eternal. Evil is not eternal. It exists in time, but God is eternal. And so let's not make the mistake to hold God before our bar of wisdom or our timetable because He is so far above what we are. So on this first message from Habakkuk that we talked about a couple weeks ago, we talked a lot about the world situation. Habakkuk's day and ours, there's many uh, similarities in, in just the injustices of, that was going on. And we need faith in confusing times. When we consider the sadness all around us, we can sit around and pontificate about it. We can talk about these things. But at some point, we've got to deal with this atheist stronghold that if God is loving, if God is powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world? That brings us to the book of Habakkuk. It's written in about 605 B.C. This is the story of one man who asked God some hard questions. In three chapters, he brings us face-to-face -face with some answers. And again, I'll give you the outline as I gave last time. Chapter 1, faith tested. Chapter 2, faith taught. Chapter 3, faith triumphant, if you wanted to outline the book. In, the <coughs> in three short chapters, Habakkuk moves from fear to faith, from burden to blessing, 
from perplexity to praise, from confusion to confidence, from worry to worship. Last week, we, uh, or two weeks ago, we talked about the fact the Babylonians were coming, God said, and you can't stop them. When they reach Jerusalem, they'll conquer it, and eventually they'll destroy it. I'm using Babylon, wicked Babylon, to judge Judah for her sins. When Habakkuk heard this, he strongly objected. God, how could you do this? And we can understand his objection from a human standpoint. How could God use wicked people to judge, yes, sinful people, his people, but the wicked people were far more wicked than the people they were judging? Initially, he focused on the wrong thing because, as we talked about, this is a dialogue between a frustrated man of faith and a God whose ways he cannot understand. And that's kind of the key of this book, him asking these questions. I mentioned last time that one commentator called Habakkuk the prophet with a question for a brain. Uh, he asked God questions, and it's interesting uh, how he works through these things. So he focused on not Judah and her sin, not Babylon and her evil, but and not even his own doubts. He focused on God and why he was doing what he was doing. Now, you may not be in the process right now of specifically questioning God or his ways. You may not struggle with all of the questions that we're going over and will as we go through the book of Habakkuk. But I'm talking, I, my goal, I guess, is to arm us to speak with the world that does have these questions. We ought to be able to answer some of these questions that people bring. Uh, in our text, Habakkuk asks some questions, and all of these questions lead back to God because he is the one with the power. And it's interesting that Habakkuk recognizes this in the basis of his questions. In the last half of Habakkuk 1, he has three questions we read tonight. I want to break them down. And asking those, he'll make a decision that kind of shapes everything else in the book. So let's look at the three questions. Question number one, who are you? Look at verse number 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. What do you do when God makes no sense? You have two choices. You can either walk away from your faith and not believe God at all anymore, or you can remind yourself who God is. This is a great help. Sometimes what we need is a good dose of theology to strengthen our faltering faith and a reminder of who God really is, realizing our smallness and his sovereignty. He was faced with the news that the hated Babylonians would soon invade Judah. Nothing could stop them. So what does Habakkuk do? He goes back to what he knows of God. I think that's interesting. In dealing with the troubles that were coming that he could not understand, he starts with creating a baseline in his mind. I've got to remember who God is. Look at what he calls God, everlasting. That's essentially saying you're sovereign. He called him Lord. You're the personal God of Israel. He called him God. You're the strong one, the creator, the majestic ruler. He called him holy. You're in a class all by yourself and set apart from sin. He called him mighty. Uh, you have all the power. He's not just whistling Dixie here. He is establishing in his mind a reminder of who God is. As Habakkuk gets his mind around this shocking truth that God's going to use Babylonia, uh, Babylon to judge Judah, he goes back to what he knows to be true of God. This is a vital step for all of us when life doesn't make sense, when God seems to be doing something we don't understand, whether it's sickness in the family or, 
or something to one of our children or something. We just don't get what's happening. We better get to the understanding who God is. That's vital. Consider that if you remove God's sovereignty, you'll question His wisdom. If you remove God's love, you'll question His goodness. If you remove God's majesty, you'll question His power. If you remove God's holiness, you'll question His fairness. If you remove God's protection, you'll tr your trust in Him will falter. You'll start losing your faith. So the question really is not then, do I believe in God? The question ought to be, what kind of God do I believe in? And I, I find it interesting that Habakkuk, <coughs> in the beginning of the questions he asks, he established in his mind firmly who God is. Faith is a choice. As we look around at the world around us, it does bring us many unanswerable questions. Uh, but if there is no God or if He is not good, then nothing at all makes sense. We do this in our relationships all the time. As we maybe hear something that somebody said and we gauge what we hear versus what we know of the person, that doesn't sound like them or doesn't sound like something they do. I remember a few years ago, in my office, I had a meeting with someone I considered a dear friend. I had spent many, many hours uh, with this uh, gentleman from our church. and He had heard some outlandish claims about me and supposedly things I had said or done. Most of it was totally taken out of context. But I remember looking at him and, and just telling what hurts me most is not the claims that you're making, but that you think I'm the kind of person that would do those things and say those things. That's really what bothered me the most. Because you know me, and you know, or, or you should. And a lot of times we'll hear about something that somebody did or said, and we ought to square that with what we know about them. Of course, people can always surprise us. But uh, when we start to question God, remember who He is. Remember His attributes. That's what Habakkuk did, and it helped him. When faced with mysteries that we cannot explain, let's begin with a baseline of facts. Let me give you a few here. God is good. Do you believe that? God is holy. God is just. That's a tough one for us sometimes. We look around, it doesn't seem like God is just, but God is supremely just. He knows all things. God is love. God makes <clears throat> no mistakes. The Bible is true from cover to cover. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is real. God is always with me. If I try my best to serve the Lord to the best of my ability, all things that happen in my life will work out together for my good. That's a hard one to, to accept sometimes. God will complete His work in me. Do these truths not help bring some faith to our heart? They sure ought to, and that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here in verse number 12. Despite his confusion... Uh, he is giving a testimony to his own faith in God. He is reminding himself who God is. By the way, how do we gain this knowledge that he had in verse 12? We get it from being in the Word of God. As you read the Bible and you learn the mind and heart of God, and you know the character of God, it'll help you. If you begin to question God, a good practice for us to do is to do a study on his character and learn who he really is. This leads us to the second question. How can you do this? Look at verse number 13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, 
and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? How can you do this? Is what he's asking God there essentially. And this is the heart of the problem, the questions we face as well, the inequities in the universe, the things that seem so unfair. And even the world knows that we are surrounded by inequities. John F. Kennedy said there's always inequality in life. Some men are killed in war, some men are wounded, and some men never leave the country. Life is unfair. You know, we all understand and we accept that in each life some rain must fall. But how many of you have ever felt that so other people get a sprinkle and you get a torrential downpour? And we understand, we just deal with, with some things and it seems unfair. How do we explain that? Well, Habakkuk's problem stemmed from a seeming conflict in God. God cannot tolerate wrongdoing. That's true. Uh, but he also, then how could he use the Babylonians to judge Judah? That's what Habakkuk, Habakkuk just can't come to this squaring that up. Babylonians' sin were far greater than the sins of Judah. Judah, Is this not a contradiction? Well, no, it's not, because that's what God chose to do. There are no con contradictions with God. We have to recognize that. He does things that seem to us inconsistent, and the key to that thought is it seems to us. Isaiah 55, 8. It's a good thing for us to memorize this verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways... Your ways, saith the Lord. He, he makes it clear. Look, there's a way you would do it. There's a way I'm going to do it. And my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. He is so far above existing in eternality, knowing the past, present, and future, having perfect knowledge and love. We, we don't have the, even the beginnings of the ability to make some of the decisions that we think we know better. God's ways will not always make sense to us. We simply don't know why things happen the way they do. Sometimes we find out later, sometimes down the road a little bit. I can look back at things that happened in my life, and now I can say, Ha! I see now why that happened that way. There's some lights have went on as I look backward. But then there's some things we don't know and understand until, probably until we get to heaven. Why God allows certain things. Technically speaking, David Ring was born dead. Doctors were able to get him breathing, but the oxygen deprivation affected his brain and left him with cerebral palsy. He suffered from a speech impediment, uh, hands that did not cooperate. He walked with a limp. And if that wasn't enough for David Ring, both of his parents died by the time he was age 14. His remaining family feared that David would never have a normal life. They assumed he would never marry. He would never have children. He would never drive a car. He'd never be able to earn a living on his own. But as a teenager, David surrendered his life to God and came to see his disability as a gift. Today he's married, has four children, drives a car, and speaks to more than 250 audiences a year. Uh, preach. He's, a, he's a preacher. And uh, you can find him all over YouTube if you ever search him. He's got quite an amazing testimony. As a youth pastor, I had a young man in our youth group that had cerebral palsy. And I heard that David Ring was going to be speaking at a church about uh, two, two or three hours away. And uh, I talked to his parents, and they took him. And that just fired that young man up like you wouldn't believe. Seeing somebody who was like him used by God in a great way. 
At his speaking engagement, David sells t-shirts that's, uh, with this slogan, don't whine, shine. Uh, one of David's axioms is don't ask God why, ask God what. Ask him, what do you want me to do in this situation or with this disability? You do not choose many of your difficulties, but you do decide how you handle them. And, and David Ring has been a tremendous blessing and uh, encouragement to millions of people because he chose to respond correctly. Every thoughtful person wrestles with this at some point. We have to get to the first law of spiritual life. Uh, you remember that? We talked about that a couple uh, couple years ago. He is God, and we're not. That's the first law of spiritual life. That'll help you if you remember that. And that'll help you to answer questions. Sometimes I'm asked questions that I don't have the answer. Why did this happen, or why did God do that? And sometimes I'll just give that answer. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I know there's a God. I know He loves us. And I know that I'm not Him. And I can't answer some of those questions. And some, some sometimes we never will. <clears throat> it's good for us to remember Psalm 115.3. But our God is in heaven, in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. <laughs> I want to, I want to, <clears throat> I want to finish that verse with any questions. <laughs> he has done whatever He pleased. And He doesn't, a- He does not ask our counsel always. It's interesting how many uh, Christians would like to be consultants. They would like to be, uh, consulted by God on how to do things. I think this is how it ought to go down. I think this is the way it should be. And uh, we just remember God is God, and we are not. Now, at this point, God still has not answered Habakkuk any of his questions. That comes in the next chapter. But suffice it to say that we are on the right track if we start to recognize who God is. That's a good beginning to getting some of our hard questions answered. Until we grasp that, we'll continue to struggle. So let's, the first step is realizing who God is. And then we come to question number three. We found in verse 17. Here's a hard one. How long will this last? Look what he says in verse 17. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? The they, of course, here refers to the Babylonian army. They keep on conquering one nation after another. No one can stop them. If they want a city, they take it. Uh, if they capture you, they'll probably kill you. Uh, to, to them, men are like fish, and they've got the net. They're just drawing the net. And guess who they're fishing for now? They're fishing for Judah. And uh, he's asking, essentially, how long is this going to go on? We all have troubles, those times in our life when we find out that rock bottom has a basement under it, and we find ourselves just going further and further down. We all want to know when our troubles will finally end. Haven't you found that it's easier to endure something if you know when the end is. But sometimes we don't know when the end is. And circumstances, I read recently, I think this is a great illustration, circumstances are kind of like a mattress. If you're under them, if you get under a mattress, it'll probably get close to suffocating you. You're not able to breathe. You're getting, uh, and that's what circumstances will do. But you get on top of them, you'll be able to rest, and you'll be able to have peace. And so... When the crisis comes, we find out who the pretenders are and who the players are. In the face of crushing evil, Habakkuk wonders when it will all end. Who's going to stop Babylon? Will this reign of terror go on forever? Who can stand in his way? This is one of our deepest questions when life starts to crumble around us. How long will this last? If it never ends, will we be able to survive it? 
So there you have Habakkuk's three questions. Who are you, Lord? Habakkuk answers his question with that. He answers his own question, supplies the answer. Then he asks, how can you do this? No answer is given. He asks, how long will this last? Also, no answer is given as of yet. Some answers in our life to those type of questions will not be answered on this side of heaven, I'm convinced. And this is where it requires us to trust God. Are you able to do that? And these are all questions maybe you've asked about areas in your life. And I like Habakkuk's transparency. I like that when he has doubts, he doesn't hesitate to ask God about them. He asks the Lord about it. He doesn't cover up his doubts with pious sayings. He says, hey, I don't get it, Lord. And he starts to ask these questions. He answers the only question he can answer, and then he waits on God to answer the other two. He is confident in God, but he's confused by what God is doing in the world. By the way, this is not a bad place to be. Uh, he's a believing man. There's just some questions he can't answer, but he's still going to trust God. And here's a question for you that I'd like for you to consider tonight. Can you deal with unanswered questions and still remain faithful? Can you still trust God even when there's some things that you don't really have an answer for? The whys behind what's happening. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 1, we get to Habakkuk's decision. Uh, he tells us what he's decided to do. Instead of becoming an atheist, instead of saying, okay, I'm an agnostic, I'm going to give up on God, he goes to his watchtower to wait on the Lord. Habakkuk did not know how the Lord will answer or how long it would be before he gets his answer. So he just knows that having said all that was on his heart and having given those questions, now it's time to wait on the Lord. He knows that Judah needs to be broken because of her sin, but he still doesn't understand how God can use wicked Babylonian, uh, Babylon to do it. So he has a decision. Look what he says. Verse 1, I will stand upon my watch, set me upon the tower, and watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He says, I'll, I'll wait on God for the answer. We don't know how long he waited, but we do know at length God answered him. Sidlow Baxter said this, People say that God does not speak to men as he did long ago. The truer statement is that some men do not listen today as they did long ago. That's a very true statement. At some point, we've got to stop talking about the problem and listen. People seldom want to listen. Have you noticed that? In conversation with people, uh, they want to talk, 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 talk. Uh, talking about our problem is so fun. We continue to lay it out on other people. Uh, of course, we need friends that will listen to us in time of need, but some Christians can't get better because they won't stop dwelling on the problem. Psalm 55, 22, Cast thy burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He'll never suffer the righteous to be moved. Why is it so much easier to go to social media with our problems than it is to go to the Lord? And yet, we do that uh, all the time. Uh, could it be because we don't like to wait? We like immediate gratification. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, better for us when we tell sympathetic friends about our problems. They immediately give us, uh, you know, they come to our pity party and celebrate with us. But giving it to the Lord. We've already reached a turning point here in Habakkuk. Having laid out his complaints before the Lord, he now waits for an answer. He's, his honest, he is honest about his complaints. He brings his questions to the Lord, and then he leaves them there. And uh, I, I like that he said here, I shall 
uh, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He was fully expecting God to reprove him for the way he thought. He was ready to be wrong. He had questions, but he was like, he wasn't adamant. He wasn't condemning toward God. He was just asking. And I think that it's a good place for us to be sometimes. Our deepest problem is not psychological. It's not sociological. It's not political. Our biggest problem is theological. Can God be trusted? What kind of God do we believe in? It shouldn't surprise us that when God answers, they don't always line up with our desires or our expectations. <clears throat> this happens to all of us sooner or later. You can try bargaining, but that doesn't work. You can get angry, but that doesn't help. You can ask God some questions, which is what Habakkuk did. and You can go back and remind yourself of who God is, and that's always a help to us. Will you wait on the Lord in times of unanswered questions? Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I don't like waiting. I don't know if you're like me, but I do not like waiting. That's why I don't go through drive throughs I don't care if it takes me twice as long. At least I'm walking. At least I'm doing something. Just sitting and waiting just bothers me to death. I don't like it, but none of us do. But we need to learn to wait on the Lord in faith and confidence. What doesn't make sense now, we can trust God. It'll make sense later. We don't understand it now, but it will one day. Maybe even in heaven we'll understand it. But as you wait, remember that God doesn't keep time the way that we do. A.W. Tozer said, God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Have you ever put a deadline on God? <laughs> he doesn't have deadlines. He does what he does as he sees fit. For the moment, we leave Habakkuk here. He's in his watchtower. He's waiting and watching for the Lord to give him an answer. Waiting is good for the soul. Ooh, that was hard to say. But waiting is good for the soul, especially if we're waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 31, But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As you rem wait, remember that God has not forgotten you. You are on his mind right now. Don't despair as you wait. Don't let troubles get you down. Sometimes, like in the case of David Ring, adversity has great benefits. We, that's hard for us to accept, but sometimes it does. And, and we see that through his adversity, he has affected many, many more uh, people than he would have had he been born healthy. God used it. There's an illustration, Isaiah 40 talks about eagles. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. There's an illustration about the benefits of adversity that can be seen in the way that an eagle needs the challenge of turbulent winds. This is interesting. Turbulent wing, winds cause the eagle to fly higher. Now, who likes turbulent winds? Especially when the temperature is like it is outdoors today. Uh, when you step outside and it's about zero and the wind, you have to hold on to something because the wind's blowing so hard. Nobody likes turbulent winds. But there's tremendous lifting power in the thermal updrafts of turbulent winds. This allows the eagle to reach great heights as he soars with them. Turbulent winds allow the eagle to get a larger view. The higher he flies, the better his perspective of the land below him. From this higher position, he's able to see more. 
So it allows him to fly higher. It allows him to get a better view of his life and what's before him. Turbulent winds also lift the eagle above harassment. The crows hit at him at lower altitudes, but as those turbulent winds hit him and lift him high, it gets him above uh, all those, uh, those pesky, uh, harassing troubles. As he soars high, he lives behind him all these distractions. Turbulent winds allow the eagle to use less effort because his wings are designed for gliding. Turbulent winds allow the eagle to stay up longer. Turbulent winds allow the eagle to fly faster, normally around 15 miles per hour, but against the right winds, he will fly up to 100 miles an hour. And I wonder if what we could accomplish in our life if instead of getting discouraged by the turbulent winds in our life, we would allow God to use them in our life to take us to greater heights if we just trust Him. Instead of getting bitter, instead of getting angry, instead of getting discouraged, just trust Him. And like David, Ring says, don't whine, shine. And let Him use those things in our life. He knows best. We don't get it sometimes. We don't understand it. We have questions for him, but at the end of the day, God knows best. The question is, will we trust him? Will we trust him? That's what we need to do. Like Habakkuk, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I've asked God, now I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait for his answer. And even if he reproves me, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear what he has to say. What a great attitude. I hope that's yours today. Uh, let's, let's trust God in the midst of of unanswered questions, let's just trust that he knows what's best for our life.